The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where this week, like the last thousand weeks in a row, we've been working hard to bring you the best information and inspiration we can so that you can start or grow your own real estate investing business. Mike and I were just laughing about the fact that um, April will be the 24th anniversary, I think. I think we started in 96 of Real Life Real Estate and kind of doing the rough doing the rough math of, you know, 45 to 50 new shows a year for 24 years. That's over a thousand shows. And then Mike brought up the fact that he would like me to bring in a tape of the very first show, which was sort of disastrous in my memory. <laughs> and also, I'm pretty sure it was either recorded on audio tape or on, you remember those mini discs we used to have? I don't even think there's a play. Oh, you have a player. Oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> I was, see, I was going to get out of it on, well, you know, I have it, but you won't be able to play it because, you know, we don't have mini disc players anymore, but he does in fact have one of those. I'll see if I can dig that up. That's probably still around somewhere, but I'm going to listen to it first before I let you play any excerpt from it whatsoever. Uh, in any case, uh, today we are uh, going to talk about something a little unusual for real life real estate, which is uh, commercial properties, investing in commercial properties as opposed to the strict residential stuff that a lot of listeners uh, like and invest in and are pursuing. Um, commercial is a legitimate option for lots of people who think in terms of residential, but not all property classes within commercial really lend themselves to the smallish investor getting involved. It's unlikely you're going to you know, go out and take down a a mall, although there's enough dead malls around that, you know, maybe you can get one really cheap, but you're not going to do a high rise office building probably unless you're just an investor in a REIT or something like that. A deal that you can do what you want to do, which is pretty much be in control of it yourself or with a small group of people or partners is, is not something that most commercial properties lend themselves to very well. But one asset class where that is not true is self-storage. You know, self-storage, you drive past those all the time. They, they, they pop up like mushrooms and you think, man, who, who uses that stuff? Well, millions of Americans use that stuff. And 
whenever there is a demand, there's some kind of profit in creating the supply. So to discuss this very interesting uh, asset class with us today, I have probably the best-known expert in the country on the topic, Mr. Scott Myers, who has been investing in self-storage units since 2006 and recently passed 2 million square feet worth of properties that he owns or is a partner in, which is that that's just that's just a lot, guys. I don't know how to I don't know how to translate that into football field, but it is a lot. He's joining us from his home in Indianapolis. Scott, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, Vina. How are you? I'm good, Scott. How are you? Fantastic. Are you feeling better? I am. I I, have, I got over whatever that was that I picked up when I was in Puerto Rico, and um, I'm still not touching people because apparently it's you know. It's contagious for a while. And now Mike's looking at me and going, she's got her mouth right up next to that microphone and other people have to talk into that microphone. Uh, yeah. So I uh, appreciate you asking. And uh, it was good to see you last night in Columbus. You, you as well. You gave a great presentation. I was, well, I was both amused and very, very, very tempted to go out and start looking at some self-storage units, even though I promised myself I wasn't going to run off after a- other asset classes anymore. Well, I think we're going to have to turn you because I think every time we talk, you say that, um, yeah, I think I might go out and take a look at that. And so, um, this, this is going to be the year. This is my 2020 goal. My goal for the decade is to get Nina into self-storage. Well, you got you got 10 years to make it happen. I, I, know, you, I, know, you, I know you convinced a lot of people last night, but... Um... Yeah, we'll we'll see. We'll see how persuasive you are exactly. So you didn't actually start out in self storage. That was not your no. your origin story in the real estate business. So talk talk a little bit about what it was that got you interested in self storage. Like what was the what was the arc of your career here? Yeah, I was um, had that you know several uh, rental houses around. We got up to we were building a portfolio of single family rentals. We weren't selling anything off. And uh, the goal was uh, following uh, the Carlton Sheets method, and like uh, many of the other gurus that I followed uh, back uh, 25 years ago, was uh, to have that passive income from uh, rental homes and uh, be able to at some point uh, sell off maybe half the portfolio to pay off uh, the mortgages on uh, the balance of them and, and then uh, own uh, several free and clear and uh, sail off into the sunset. But I realized that, um, you know, that, that can happen, but if you slug it out long enough, but uh, in the meantime, I never got to, quite got to that place where, it was uh, passive, and uh, after dealing with tenants and toilets in uh, uh, the 80 houses that we had and then the 400 apartments, I realized didn't matter how big we got, the economies of scale really never kicked in um, for us. And at the end of the day, I really just, uh, well, as many people say, we, we love rental real estate for for the tenants. <laughs> and I, I found myself that I maybe had a low threshold, uh, lower threshold than, than others, and I started just really getting disappointed in my fellow man because it continued to destroy my properties and, and, and not pay rent or, or, or steal from us in my book. So, um, I did, you know, we love real estate for all the reasons that everybody loves real estate, and that is because um, you can buy it. You can uh, leverage money, borrow money to buy it. Uh, it. It appreciates if you do things right in value, and you can enforce that appreciation. You can depreciate the asset, and if you have rental real estate, then people are paying down the basis or paying it off for you and you have a cash flowing asset. There's no other investment like that. So if you don't want to have tenants and toilets, it's parking lots, maybe parking garages or self-storage. And so I began looking into self-storage. And uh, yeah, for all those reasons, I made the switch. If people don't 
pay rent, you can uh, lock them out, sell their stuff off, and when you're done, uh, when they're done using it, or after you have uh, moved them out, if they don't uh, pay, then you blow it out with a blower and move in the next person waiting in line. And so um, for that and many other reasons, yeah, we made the switch. And we're going to talk about some of those other reasons when we come back from this break. But I want to invite listeners who have ever passed one of those self-storage facilities and thought, huh, I wonder what the economics of that is, that those are. I wonder how much they cost. I wonder how much money you can make on them. I wonder how you manage them. I wonder if they need to be managed, all those things. This is the day to ask those questions because I'm not the expert on self-storage. Scott is the expert on self-storage, and we only have him here for about another 45 minutes. So if you've ever had any questions about self-storage, give us a call at 877-772-9658. Again, 877-772-9658. Or you can send us an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and my guest today is Scott Myers, who's going to fill us in as much as he can in about 45 minutes of airtime on his adventures in self-storage and why he loves them and some of the some of the details, pros, cons, that sort of thing. Obviously, we never recommend here on Real Life Real Estate that you listen to a 45-minute radio show and then go out and write a big check and invest in something. There's always details to be learned, usually at much greater length than what we have time for here on the air. Uh, Scott is actually going to be doing two one-day seminars here in Ohio, sponsored by local real estate investors associations over the next month or so. One's coming up on February 15th here in Cincinnati. You can get more information about that at CincinnatiRIA.com. The other one is in Columbus on, I've got that backwards, it's February 15th in Columbus, <laughs> and that's, that's centralohioria.com, and March 21st in Cincinnati, which is cincinnatiria.com for more information. Those are sponsored by the local groups, but are open to the public. So if you like what you hear today and you're like, I need to do some more exploring, that would be potentially a good way to do it. So Scott... Um, a few years back, I remember reading a press release that you put out. I th- this was maybe, it's toward the end of the Great Recession. It was 2012, 2013, something like that. You would put out a press release that said that uh, self-storage had been the best performing class of property for, I don't know, a decade in a row or something like that. How How is it doing now? Yeah. Very good question, and um, the reasons are that uh, self-storage, uh, unlike other asset classes, it actually benefits during a recession. So if you uh, look backwards uh, during a 10-year period uh, uh, that included uh, that cycle, um, when the economy declines um, or goes into a correction or a recession, people downsize, and they move back home, they move in with uh, friends, and uh, but they still have stuff that they can't uh, take with them from their previous residence, and so they put it in storage businesses also retract during a recession, and so they may sublease some of their office space, they may have it just uh, inventory or even uh, raw materials uh, that goes into storage, unsold uh, goods, um, things that they just can't get rid of and they can't store on site at uh, their office or uh, facilities, and so they go into self-storage because it is such a low cost per square foot. And so 
we see a, a rush to self-storage and a huge absorption in uh, vacancies, and we match that with the fact that uh, banks aren't uh, typically in the business of uh, giving out speculative or development loans during a recession, and so we have a contraction in the development, and it just creates a perfect storm for storage. And that uh, the, the facilities uh, that are in existence, uh, they, they lease up, and um, by you know sheer, sheer supply and demand, we're able to raise rates then when there's uh, fewer of those uh, around. So the asset class is an investment, whether we're holding them or investing them passively, it does extremely well. So since then, uh, since uh, 2012, uh, we've had a boom in self-storage, and we are still, um, in, in many areas of the country, making up for those years in which there wasn't any development in, in all this pent-up demand. So there has been a, a lot of square footage that has been introduced to the marketplace, so there is a, no longer a huge deficit. But um, don't don't uh, I'm not going to paint a, a gloomy picture because there are many, many areas, many, many markets. And within every market, um, our, our, our self-storage facility market, per se, is really only a three-mile radius of wherever you drop a, a pin. And uh, we, we do our, our map and look at the supply index of self-storage facilities that are in the market versus population. And uh, there are opportunities um, still all across this country right now. So we've seen, uh, because the asset class performed so well during a recession, we've had a lot of investors and uh, developers, private equity, you know, rushing to self-storage because the asset class, uh, asset class does so well. And so we, we are enjoying a, a very robust time in the self-storage industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... I think what you're saying is that there, yeah, there's more than there used to be. Like it's not, it's not 2012 when if you bought something, it was, and you marketed it right. Cause you can't, you can't just like buy a building and just sit there and wait for people to come and rent your, <laughs> your bays. Um, uh, even though there's a lot more of them and I think everybody can see that uh, there are still good deals out there. It's just a matter of finding them. Correct. For uh, buying existing uh, facilities, uh, there are still people that sell um, self-storage facilities, just like investors and, and, and owners of other forms of real estate sell those types of real estate. Um, they are trading in, they're trading up, they've depreciated them. Um, they're looking to get into bigger and uh, better properties. Um, they're retiring, they're moving, they're consolidating. And then, you know, there, there's health issues uh, that people run into, and there's divorces still going on, and, and bankruptcies and other issues. So, so for all the reasons people sell real estate, um, those people that own self storage facilities are still selling as well. Uh huh. Sometimes they're just bad at owning them. And that too. <laughs> I I, uh, I, uh, I know this because there's a there's a self storage facility someplace in the county to the east of us, which is a more rural mm-hmm. area. So I'm going to assume it's maybe an older, probably smaller, not one of these big professionally run ones. And I get calls on my cell phone from people looking to rent those units probably once a week which means somebody has advertisement Mm -hmm. out there somewhere with uh, a mistyped phone number and they've never noticed it this has been going on for like seven years i've been getting these phone calls from people asking about do you have a space available this size i'm like nope wrong place and I keep meaning to track down the owners and seeing if they want to sell, because I can't believe they're doing that well when they can't even publish their phone number correctly. Well, that may be difficult to do, because if you call that number, you're just calling yourself. That's so I, true. I don't think I can help you there, Nina. Oh, man. Uh, terrible. It's a, it's a horrible catch-22. <laughs> so so if, if I were uh, interested in 
approaching self-storage and I had gotten the requisite education in how to evaluate them properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was, I was out looking for deals. Like, how would I know if I saw one? Like, what are some of the telling characteristics that, that, that you look for? Because as well known as you are, I'm guessing you get approached constantly with people who say, oh, I know about this facility for sale. And you probably left swipe a lot of them automatically because you're like yeah i just there's just there's just nothing there mm-hmm. what makes you what makes you sit up and pay attention yeah so there's um you know there's a difference between as you know a, a deal versus an opportunity and yeah you know, there's a whole lot of folks that uh, present uh, opportunities to us in many cases they aren't even uh, that so you know we, we like value-add real estate and that has to have some type of a value-add component to it which usually means that there's a some form of distress and distressed real estate is distressed real estate. If you drive by it, you know what it looks like. Um, it's just you know unkept. Um, in the case of a self-storage facility, it's not marketed well, even from a curb appeal standpoint. The, the signage is poor. <laughs> the phone number is wrong. And it doesn't look like anybody's home or doing anything. You know, It doesn't have the flags out front. Or it doesn't say have move-in specials or bandit signs along uh, the road or anything. And they would let you know that they're, that they're renting units. If you call that facility, um, do they answer the phone? And if not, can you tell that it brings over to a call center where somebody grabs that, that phone number? And in many cases, like uh, these uh, mom-and-pop facilities, uh, they, they may not even have a website to even have a web of presence. So uh, this, there's you know, all the telltale signs that it's just a poorly run business, as you mentioned earlier. You know, those are the main things. But then once we, we dig into a facility, say uh, uh, they do find uh, an opportunity that may be a deal, when we dig into the numbers to try to tr- find the true value of it, then that's when you really see whether you have a deal or not and have they raised rents in uh, 5, 10, 15 years. And in many cases, uh, the, the owners and operators that are doing a poor job, they haven't. And the excuse is, or the comment is always, well, you know, I don't like to raise rents because I just want to stay full. And so my answer to that in my head is, uh, yeah, you just like throwing money down the toilet and uh, leaving a whole lot left on the table for us and uh, so we, we we go into the those types of facilities. We look for inefficiencies. All the free units that they're given their their family and friends and coworkers, or that the half off special that they gave to somebody to move them in that they never bothered to <laughs> increase the rent on. <laughs> um, so you know all those telltale signs of, of areas that you can create value in, in the facilities. Uh, again, from a curb appeal standpoint, and then once you dig into the numbers, that's when we know we really have something. Uh huh. Uh huh. So uh, so far. Other than the fact that as I've mentioned, I think a couple of times the 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 actual value of the facility is uh, is evaluated differently than it would be with a single family home where you're running comps. It's more it's more like an apartment building. It's done more like an apartment building uh, would be done. It sounds like folks who are used to buying ugly houses and rehabbing them or even ugly apartment buildings and repositioning them would be very comfortable with this up till now. I mean, it sounds like you're looking for largely the same. You're looking for Mm -hmm. financial situations and personal situations and condition situations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and more similar to uh, uh, apartments, uh, commercial real estate is, is commercial real estate in terms of valuations for the most part that Yes, we are looking at uh, uh, deriving a net operating income, taking your income minus expenses, getting to that net operating income, and then applying a market cap rate to it that gives uh, that facility a, a valuation, much like an apartment, which is, again, different from a single-family home, but 
the differences or the the similarities then and being distressed you know mm-hmm. <laughs> we see a house that uh, that we know that we can fix up and, and has a, a bad appearance and same with the self-storage facility so yes a combination of both all right perfect we're going to take another quick break after which we're going to get to some questions that some listeners have sent in about uh things they want to know about investing in self-storage if you have such a question, you can call it in at 877-772-9658 or send us an email at askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today, Scott Myers, self-storage guru extraordinaire. Not just a guru, a doo he owns a lot of these things. He owns more than anybody I have ever met. And he's been doing it for a long time. And he's been doing it in hot markets and cold markets. And when I am looking for an expert, I want to see somebody who didn't just get successful in the last two years during the hot market. I want to see somebody who got beat up and bruised when the market in whatever their particular kind of property uh, changed. Because if I'm going to own that kind of asset, I want to hear from somebody who knows what not to do when things turn around. Thus, Scott. That's why uh, he is here today and will also be, by the way, at um, Cincinnati Rhea tomorrow night. uh, Giving a 90-minute presentation where he actually gets to do slides and show pictures and all that kind of stuff we can't do on the radio. If you'd like to attend that meeting, it is open to the public. CincinnatiRIA.com, that's Cincinnati R-E-I-A.com, would get you uh, a chance to RSVP or even a free first time guest pass. Okay, listener questions, Scott. I uh, got a question here from Tom in Kentucky. He says... All right, so what sort of upfront cash would I need to get involved in self-storage investing? Very good question, Tom. So in a traditional sense, if you're looking at uh, buying a piece of real estate and or a commercial real estate uh, like a self-storage facility, most loans uh, that the lenders are offering are anywhere from a 75 to 80% uh, LTV, loan-to-value, meaning you about percent. Uh, the SBA also has a program that will go up to 85%, so you may have a, as little as a 15% uh, down that you would have to put in to whoa, 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 get a loan whoa. on a self-storage facility. Whoa, whoa, back Hello? up, back up. You yep. said yep. you said SBA, and I'm not mm-hmm. sure that everybody understood what that meant, because oh. that's big. I'm sorry. Oh, you're, you're, uh, that's right. Acronym. The acronym police is out. Uh, Small Business Administration. So the Small Business Administration, they, they essentially, for lack of a better word, they back loans um, for these banks and they underwrite them. And so it allows the banks to offer a higher LTV loan on these projects. And then in that case, in many cases, uh, with uh, larger facilities and the folks that we work with and partner with, then they're going out and layering some private equity on top of that and raising money from um, friends and family or creating uh, syndications because there are an awful lot of investors that want to invest in self-storage. Uh, passively. So if you get good at that side or you learn how to get good at that side, you may have uh, very little into these projects. Like uh, many of our partners, they may only have twenty-five dollars or $50,000 into a multi-million dollar facility as they've layered private equity on top of these SBA loans and other loans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So as in every other 
asset class, there are there are creative options. Um, I, I actually was talking to one of your uh, coaching students in Tennessee about six months ago, and she mentioned uh, buying a small facility where there was a big owner financing component. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, we, we find that a lot. You know, there are many of these owners of self-storage facilities, the mom and pops, they bought them several years ago, they've paid them off, they've paid them down, and therefore they have a very low basis when it comes time for them to sell. And once they decide to do so, um, many, like myself, don't want to pay capital gains taxes. And so an offer to uh, defer that and to uh, soften the blow, but they, they will then uh, offer seller financing, owner financing, sometimes up to 100% because they really want to defer and don't like paying capital gains taxes. Um, other times they may finance up to 90% to do so, or you may flip that around and you go out and get a 75% LTV loan and the seller would carry back, uh, say, maybe 20%, so you would just come to the table with a, a 5% down payment. So, yes, many ways to be creative, if you will, or what, as we call it in commercial real estate, and many ways to layer the capital stack to get across the finish line. <laughs> layer the capital stack. That sounds so fancy. It means use other people's money, Correct. plus bank money, plus whatever you have to do to make it work. That actually still, of course, results in the facility making money, which is why understanding things like what should it be rented for, what what should the taxes be, what should the... Uh, maintenance costs that hasn't has you're looking at the you're looking at the owner's uh, tax returns and they've got zero maintenance costs for the last ten years and also it shows right so <laughs> understanding things like uh, yeah but when I'm operating how much is it going to be and then looking at also what the effect of the financing is going to be is important. Um, Tom had a second question. Which is, do you prefer building or do you prefer buying? Mm. So um, I like both, Tom, because I like self-storage. So the, the, the quickest way to get into the business, obviously, is uh, to buy a self-storage facility. You buy when it's already uh, running and that you can uh, turn around because it's uh, the quickest uh, to get to either cash flow or more cash flow. Uh, development is a, is a longer process if you start with a piece of dirt and you're going to put an income stream on it. Um, if there isn't a, even zoning in place, you have to go through zoning. Um, we do a feasibility study with consultants to determine if it, uh, it actually is feasible in the market, if the, the current rates will support construction of a new facility at today's cost of construction, and then how long does it take to ramp it up and get it stabilized before it uh, breaks even and then, and then eventually makes money. And is the bank comfortable financing that runway, you know, the one, two, three years before, it begins to cash flow uh, because to them they're, they're paying money uh, for their money. So there's a lot of things that to consider. Um, the hybrid for us is conversions, and what we really like is uh, to buy a, a dark or a vacant uh, building and then convert it to self-storage, meaning we have a shell in place, hopefully a solid one, but even if we have to put a roof on it or change an elevator out, uh, it's still less time than to go through zoning and then build it and, and then put in the units and lease them up, whereas all we have to do is put in the units and begin leasing up right away. And that only takes 60 to day, sixty to 90 days to do so, and then we're open and in business. And in many cases, it costs less to do that, a conversion, than it does to develop from the ground up, and uh, in a shorter time frame, it equals a larger return. So that's the best of both worlds for us. Mm-hmm. So 
to answer your question, I like them both, but I added a third that I like even better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was. Uh, if you had not addressed that, I was going to uh, ask you about it because uh, we're seeing a lot of those in the Cincinnati area. I assume it's nationwide, mm-hmm. but uh, mm-hmm. old, old, even like factories and warehouses that yeah. have have been literally sitting vacant for twenty years. I mean, they've just mm-hmm. been they've just been eyesores with the windows broken out for uh, as long as I've been driving by them are suddenly becoming these nice bright shiny you know it's often multiple story which is interesting mm-hmm. uh self-storage facilities and uh i was uh, i was going to ask if you had any experience with that because it's a it's a somebody's making some money on it here i can tell you that they they are and we do um we, we've been doing it in um, several parts of the country and and you're right cincinnati is a self-storage developer's playground because you have all those beautiful buildings, those older industrial buildings, and I say beautiful because I'm, I'm a fixer-upper, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I can see the future of those, and yeah, it's been incredible to see every time I, I come over to Cincinnati to see more and more of those buildings converted to self-storage, um, and you know, the beauty of this is that you know, we can pick these up. It, it's it, it, they're The buildings that the condo owners, the apartment owners, they just couldn't make the numbers work. You know, it, it overlooked... I don't know, an industrial area, or there was just too much work that needed to be done to, to make it habitational. There was too much, you know, too many issues, environmental issues, um, to get it habitational. But for storage, it's less stringent, and it can be in a downtown area. It doesn't have to be across from a, a beautiful park because people are just storing their stuff there. So when those condo and apartment owners, they, they develop in other areas that are one or two blocks away, well, there is no storage except for these infill locations. And it uh, it absolutely ticks the box. It pleases the city to get these uh, buildings back on the tax roll again. And then in many cases, it's the highest and best use of these asset classes or, or those buildings to turn it into this asset class just because it, it really couldn't feasibly be turned into anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the particular uh, buildings that I'm remembering seeing that happen to in the last few years uh, all overlook highways which is not mm-hmm. not your ideal <laughs> you know <Right>. loft apartment <laughs> space um but i assume I have the advantage that i can see them from the highway so yes. as a self-storage mm-hmm. unit that's probably you know good, good advertising, advertising right mm-hmm. right absolutely car count is everything all right very good uh we need to take a final quick break and come back to some listener questions and some more Questions for you, Scott, about uh, mistakes that you see new self-storage investors making. You can give us a call at 877-772-9658, or with any last-minute questions, send them to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing, broadcasting live from Cincinnati, Ohio, where if you don't like the weather, wait an hour. It was like 60-something degrees yesterday, and you're telling me there's going to be snow at the end of the week? Okay. Can you make that stop? That's true. That's true. Uh, We're talking today about self-storage facilities and investing in them. And uh, we've got a number of listener questions here that I want to get to. Uh, let's see. We have one here from, uh, JC from Las Vegas, who we haven't actually heard from in a while. He says, can you ask Scott to address how to monetize the extra undeveloped land that often seems to come with these storage buildings? 
what are the best returning options beyond just dividing it or selling it off? Should you always build additional units when possible? Well, you know, the easy way to roll through the rest of our questions and clear them all out is I can just say it depends. And we can move <laughs> on to the next if you'd like. But, um, so we, we, we do feasibility studies. I mentioned that earlier. And that means that we hire consultants to come in and, and look at the highest and best use of a piece of ground if we, we think it may be a great market to develop in. And they kind of back that up with the data. We do a lot of it in-house. So we rely on them to do you know, the final. And we also need that for lending uh, and for our private equity partners. But at the end of the day, um, it, we, we can look at the supply index. If it's an undersupplied market, then uh, most likely we'd like that land to be used for building additional buildings. Um, if we're nearing a place where within a three-mile radius, or in the case of a downtown Cincinnati property, a one-mile radius, if we're seeing that um, occupancy is uh, creeping up and we're having to you know, burn off our concessions for, the, um, for renting the, the units or, or offer more, then we may look to both an RV parking. Um, we can also offer that up for uh, truck parking for people that want to put 53-foot uh, tractor trailers there. Um, there's a number of things that we can do. And if it's a large enough piece, you could also sell it off. You could uh, sublease it for other businesses. We've done, uh, we had a, a propane filling company come in and they needed a place to park trucks and then also have a place for the big tanks that they wanted to fit in to be able to fill uh, large and small tanks. And so we leased a space out to them. They signed a seven-year lease and put up a fence and put all their equipment in. So there's a number of different uses for that. At the end of the day, we like to have storage. It starts with buildings first and then a boat and RV. And then beyond that, then we put it out to the market. And you can also list it with a broker who may have some clients that are looking to sublease um, from us that land and, and do some minor improvements on it or perhaps even buy it from us if it's a large enough piece. Hmm. So, so lots of options, and it, I, I laughed when you said it depends because that's uh, that's our favorite answer here yeah, <laughs> on, on real life real estate because uh, uh, it's so often the case. You know, folks want like a super clear cut. This is what you always do answer, but often that super clear cut answer you just got is only right part of the time. Anyway, I uh, got a two-part question from Janine in Atlanta. The first one is, does Scott have an ideal size of property, i.e. number of units or square feet? Mm. Hi, Janine. And um, no, we don't. Um, at, the, at the end of the day, there's, there's multiple things that we look at. I, I think there's a, a threshold that we reach, uh, we have reached now, in which is a facility that may be too small because it's difficult to find somebody to manage it. Hmm. Uh, we like to have facilities uh, where there is a person that's at least working part-time, a manager that is at that facility that can greet people and uh, assist them, um, offer upsells to them in terms of uh, tenant insurance, boxes, locks, boxes, moving supplies, and just making sure that they get the, the you know the right size and the and that they're taken care of, that can't happen in in a 50 or 100 unit facility. That's kind of on the small side because you would just over payroll and and put a burden on that property, paying somebody hourly without a whole lot of activity. So we we try to um, we don't go beyond below 100 units for the most part. Um, yes, we can use some kiosks and some other technology, but it's just not the optimal way of uh, running a facility. Um, very, very large facilities, um, the larger, the better. Uh, but if we find, uh, if we're looking to buy or build an extremely large facility, uh, the yield usually isn't as high, and it's a little more difficult to build a large facility and have the runway for that to lease up and make sense. So 
the sweet spot that we've kind of landed in, it seems like, for myself and our, our students that are starting out, are somewhere in the forty to 60,000 square foot range. And that ends up being somewhere between usually 250 to 300 units on up to about 450 to, to maybe 500 units. And then the value of that is, uh, is very dependent. It, it, it varies widely just depending upon the market and what the rental rates are and the expenses. But that's, uh, if I could you know, kind of hone in, even though I didn't hone in, that's a pretty wide range. But uh, this would be kind of our sweet spot and, and, and the size for folks that are looking to get into the business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The second part of Janine's question is, what do you think about properties in rural areas? I actually come from a part of Georgia where there aren't very many self-storage units, but there also, there also isn't a high population. What are some opportunities in areas like that? Yeah, you know, that, that kind of ties into the first answer that I gave, and it's just a little more difficult um, in the rural areas. You know, you're going to if you're not supplying a large number of folks, you're going to be building a smaller facility. It's a little more difficult to manage. Um, it can be done as long as the rental rates in the market, if there are facilities already there that you can see will warrant you building, buying some land and, and building um, a facility. It does work in rural areas. It's a little more different to scale in those markets, and there's just not a lot of activities. There isn't a lot of movement um, and a population growth in that market to go in and, and build a facility unless it's a very undersupplied um, you're competing against maybe one or two other players in town. You don't really have the ability to raise rates or, or really get any movement, um, so to speak. So it, it can be done. It's just a little more difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Question from one of my favorite local millennials who shall remain nameless when you hear the question. Ask Scott if the future of self-storage is totally automated through robotics and AI. <laughs> the, uh, let me get into my crystal ball here. Hold on a second. I'm here somewhere. There it is. Well, you know, self-storage is a, a pretty static industry. We, we don't have a whole lot of uh, revolutionary, oh, gosh, you know, iterations of uh, storage. It's, it's pretty simple. But what has come into play is automation and the ability to have unmanned facilities or to utilize kiosks, as, uh, as I alluded to earlier. And so, as a matter of fact, I just have a, a call today with one of our vendors, and, and they have uh, taken the kiosk uh, concept and that platform to another level in that uh, when you, you, can, you can still reserve a unit or lease a unit you know, with your smartphone. We have the ability to do that. Um, the software is out there in the marketplace, and you get a gate code. It's supplied to you via the phone. It allows you to get into the facility. Um, your cylinder lock is in the unit, and it only has your code on it, and, and you can get into your unit that way. And so all this can be done you know, without putting into contact with the manager. Uh, but there hasn't been up to this time. You know, the, the, the kiosk is still a little bit clunky because you can't uh, negotiate. The client can't negotiate with uh, the owner of the facility. If they need help, it's not really provided unless they go to a call center. And so that, you know, that transaction, although um, it's a, a great next step of not having to pay somebody to be there in the facility, it's still a little bit clunky. So now what we're seeing is that uh, we have large video screens in these uh, offices. So when you walk in, there is somebody that greets you via video, and they're in a command center somewhere else. Hmm. But they're not a, a 10 or 11 or $12 you know, warm body who's sitting behind the counter, as we see in this, most of these facilities you know, on the smaller end. Uh, but these are folks that are really regional manager or district manager level in terms of their experience and expertise and their knowledge. And they greet the person via uh, the, the video and the speaker and says, hey, the kiosk is over over here. 
Um, the sizes of our units are right here in our office or along that wall in a video of each one that explains um, exactly you know, what can fit in those and, and what the process looks like. And, uh, and I'll be right here if you have any questions. And they go back, they look back down at their desk, and they go back to, to work doing what they're doing. And if a person has a question, all they have to do is ask, and that person is right there. So that is the next step as far as uh, robotics and AI. I don't see how robotics figure into this. <laughs> AI may help them in the decision to you know, rent a unit before they even come in, as I understand how AI is going to work when we walk into the grocery store or a clothing store. But uh, beyond that, that's, that's the best I got for you that I can see in, in the near future. <laughs> yeah, millennials always wanting human beings not to have jobs. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't get the it. Wave of the future. Um, so uh, last night, in uh, at the, when you were giving your presentation in Columbus, you had a list of. Uh, it seemed like a lot of um, of income streams that can mm-hmm. be attached to a self storage facility that you don't actually see like a lot of people don't seem to know about them or or use Mm -hmm. them and Mm -hmm. um i was taking notes but then i got called out of the room so can you can you just give the our listeners kind of a a quick idea of like so there's the rental Mm -hmm. of the unit and that's going to be your main source of income but other ways that you make money from the same self-storage unit where you are also renting or self-storage facility where you're also renting units Mm mm-hmm so again, you know, the beauty of commercial real estate and self-storage is that you have a person in the office that, that is allowed you know, that allows you to have those upsells and have these multiple profit centers uh, within the facility itself. And so some of the easy ones um, are, are the easy add-ons that all facilities are selling locks, boxes, and moving supplies. And so we say to set up a retail center, and uh, sometimes at, at a smaller facility, what that means is really just a pegboard. Uh, that has locks on it and um, straps and ropes, and we have a dolly that they can uh, rent or buy, and gloves and the, you know, the plastic, the bubble wrap, so that their things don't get uh, destroyed or broken. Um, that, that's easy, low-hanging fruit. Same with tenant insurance um, to protect their goods while they're there. Most people don't think about it, and then we do get a spiff or a perk off of that. We don't sell insurance. We offer it because we're not licensed, but we do get a, a, a kickback for that, if you will, and that may not even be the proper term to use, but we do get a percentage of that uh, that premium. And then beyond that, depending upon the size of the facility and what the needs are in, in the market, once again, sitting it depends. Um, if you have a boat and RV uh, spaces out there, you can offer those services. So uh, dumping pits, you can offer uh, propane filling. Um, we've seen eBay services, record storage, and shredding services. Um, we can sell racks into those units and have um, medical storage um, for different types of um, uh, documents. Um, we've even seen pet washes in these facilities. And when I was at the <laughs> trade show several years ago, you can, in, if you have a 10 by 15, you can actually slide this entire pet wash that's point operated into a unit and offer that at your facilities and put it up front in uh, one of the buildings that's uh, near the road. So, yes, there's a multiple ancillary income streams that you can add to a self-storage facility, many of which you don't have to um, bother having a person there to run it, like vending machines and some of the others that I mentioned, and that are done through the kiosk, and then others uh, would require somebody to be there, like the rental of U-Haul trucks, which is uh, also uh, another great income stream for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so the other thing that I bet you hear all the time is people coming to you after they have already made some huge mistake 
mm-hmm. and investing in self-storage, and now they want mm-hmm. your help to kind of straighten it out. Like, yeah. like if they'd have just gotten the yeah. education in the first place, they wouldn't have made the mistake, <laughs> but too late they did. Now, Scott, how can you rescue me? Right. When that happens, like, what are the biggest gotchas? Like, what are the biggest things that people are doing wrong? Yeah, I, I've got to get this mug. I, I have a friend of mine that's an orthopedic surgeon, and uh, we were just up visiting him in, in, in Michigan a few weeks ago over the holidays, and he has this mug that says, uh, with the Google on it uh, up in the very top, and it says, don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. Very <laughs> <laughs> really appropriate. Everybody comes into his office, and, and they already have diagnosed what's wrong with them. And, and yes, people go out, and they look at the, you know YouTube and watch a few videos, and all of a sudden, you know, they're experts in investing in commercial real estate. Um, and so we, we see this all the time because they think it's very simple. And the, 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 the easiest way to, to paint a broad brush stroke over that is they don't know due diligence. They don't know how to do due diligence because they just don't know what they don't know. Uh, they may be given a, a, a profit loss statement. Um, see, I didn't say P&L, a profit loss <laughs> statement by a broker or a seller. And so they, they add up all the income and they add up the expenses and then they put what they think is a good uh, market capitalization rate on it. And so this must be the value. Well, what they miss is that, um, well, they, they, they increase and did a pro forma on the income. It wasn't what was actual. It's, it's in the future. And they only had eight out of the 17 expenses that go with every self-storage facility. And they didn't know which ones were missing or what to add in or that. And, you know, as you stated earlier, that the owner, you know, didn't have any repairs and maintenance or landscaping or lawn mowing or snow removal or any of those other things or management expenses on the facility because, well, I just do it all. It's not an expense of the property. When you own it, it won't be there either. <laughs> so uh, just not knowing what – they don't know what they don't know and how to evaluate these things the way a bank is going to come in and underwrite them or a consultant or an appraiser. And um, if they do it all on fluff and all uh, missing numbers, when they come in and, and reality hits, yeah, they'll be in trouble right away. And with commercial real estate, since we do value it based upon uh, a cap rate, you know, a, a multiple or a capitalization rate, for easy math, if you divide that net operating income by uh, 10% or 0.10, if you make a $10,000 mistake in the underwriting and the annual income and expenses or the, the net operating income, that's $100,000 in valuation that you just made an error and shorted yourself. Mm. So it doesn't take much to make a, you know, a small mistake or an error just because you didn't know what you didn't know can equate to huge tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars in valuation that when you think you're walking into equity, you actually just uh, <laughs> you did not improve your balance sheet. Um, it just went down the day you purchased it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a reason that everybody says get seriously educated about your investments before you jump into them because as you say you don't know what you don't know and folks who are interested in getting more educated about this can come see scott tomorrow night at cincinnati ria or on february 15th in columbus for an all-day session that he's doing to rsvp for cincinnati ria it's cincinnatiria.com for more information about the all-day session Go to centralohioria.com. Scott, I look forward to seeing you tomorrow night. Appreciate you sharing with Real Life Real Estate listeners today. My pleasure, Vina. Thanks for having me. Thanks. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.